Well, we do begin this week of special emphasis celebrating marriage and family and how wonderful it is to give time and attention to what the Word of God says about these wonderful blessings of marriage and family. Our theme for this particular annual emphasis is passing on the legacy. And let me begin by saying that everyone uh, leaves a legacy. Everyone leaves either a positive legacy or a negative legacy, but everyone leaves a legacy. We want to leave a legacy, surely, that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't want to leave a legacy that does otherwise. And I want to say that everyone, I mean everyone, leaves a legacy, so that includes the never-marrieds, the marrieds who do not have biological children, the marrieds that have biological children, the marrieds that have adopted children, Christians that have fostered children, and any of us who have spiritual children that are looking to us for example and encouragement in the things of God. So everyone leaves a legacy. The question becomes, what legacy do we leave? Now, I know I'm principally preaching God's word this day to Believers in Jesus Christ, the converted, the born again, the children of God, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That being the case, I'm going to assume something. I'm going to assume that all those that are hearing this particular sermon want to leave a God-honoring legacy. And so our sermon verses for this morning are in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And if we can understand properly these verses and some verses that will follow that we will look at next Lord's Day, God's sparing life, if we can understand these verses and put these verses into practice in our lives and in our homes, then heaven will be pleased with the legacy that we are able to leave after we depart this earth. So let's look at 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 3. And as I remind you each week, hear the word of God. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And so as we consider these three verses, I want us together to ask and let the verses answer three questions. Who, what, and how? Who, what, And how? And so let's start with the first question and the text's first answer. The who is a bondservant of Christ. Will you please notice that verse 1 sees Peter call himself a bondservant. Simon Peter, a bondservant. He also calls himself an apostle in verse 1. May I just review what I have taught you before, that biblically speaking, we have no apostles today. No one, biblically, technically speaking, is an apostle. 
Although apostle means a sent one, no one is a sent one in the technical biblical sense of the apostles of the first century. Because in Acts chapter 1, after Judas Iscariot had hung himself, they needed to replace him with an apostle. And in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, the criterion mentioned for the selection of an apostle in the first century was that he was to be an eyewitness of all of Christ's ministries and particularly an eyewitness of Jesus Christ bodily resurrected from the dead. Of course, none of us were on earth when Jesus Christ ministered. None of us were on earth when Jesus Christ rose from the dead to eat with him or to hear him teach or to see him. So technically, we can't be apostles, but we can be bondservants, and we should be bondservants. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it helps us understand the idea of being a bondservant. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So a servant is one thing, but in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there was a higher uh, commitment of being a servant called being a bond servant. In Israel's history in the Old Testament, you were a servant for seven years, and then you were set free from your servitude, and you could be a free person. But if at the end of that mandatory years of slavery, you decided voluntarily you wanted to be a bond servant for your master, then you would have a ceremony with him, and your earlobe would be pierced, and it would be a, a, a signify that you elected to be a lifelong bond servant of Christ. Now, who would do that? What slave would decide to be a bond slave? Well, one who came to love his master, one who came to trust his master, one who believed that life could not be better in freedom without the master as it could be in glad slavery with a master. This is not a commentary on racial slavery at all. This is a spiritual notion of being a bond servant. And wise is the Christian who presents him or herself, a la Romans 12, 1 and 2, to be a bond servant of Christ, a living sacrifice until we see Christ face to face and that bond serving extends through all of heaven's eternity. And so the bond servant is the particular Christian who can make the greatest possible God-honoring legacy impact on those that are in his family or her family or those that he or she knows. It's the bond servant that has the highest potential for positive legacy impact. And so it's the person who has sung and lives out, I surrender all. The person whose life has got the signature of, I've been saved to serve. The believer who can say to others, do as I do. I remember a believer in the second church I pastored. You could always count on Marilyn. If anything needed to be done and she was able to do it, then she was willing to do it. And whenever I would thank her, and I know that she was serving Jesus Christ, she wasn't serving her pastor, but whenever I encouraged her and thanked her for doing this or that, she'd say with a smile, well, we do what we can. 
she is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, who can leave the highest impact for God-honoring legacy in others? It's the believer who is a bondservant. Are you a bondservant? It's not automatic. It's a personal choice of discipleship that you make before God. I encourage you to make that choice. And so it is bondservants who sparkle with the glory of God most in their marriages. It is bondservants who shine with the glory and character of Jesus Christ in their families and church families. I can think of bondservant husbands in this assembly, many whose wives are infirmed, housebound, bedridden, And these unsung heroes, these bond-servant husbands minister to their wives, helping them at every turn with positive and loving attitudes. When a wife may not sleep all through the night because she's turned night into day and day into night, and a husband has to work with that with sleep deprivation, doesn't complain but just gets cat naps when necessary to try to catch up on a whole night's sleep he may have lost attending to his dear bride. That honors God and that leaves legacy. And men, you know who you are. There's more than one of you in this assembly who have that kind of a ministry to your wives. And of course, there are bond servant wives in our assembly who have that kind of service to their husbands. God is well pleased and you are leaving a high-impact spiritual legacy to those in your family and to those in this church family. And so the first question of the passage is who? Who leaves the best spiritual legacy? The answer is a bondservant of Christ. The second question is what? The what question. What are the wonderful blessings that are to be passed along in legacy We would say, in summary, the blessings are some of the wonderful blessings that come with salvation. The text gives us several wonderful blessings that come with every single believer's salvation. And these blessings are what we are to work and live toward passing on to our children and grandchildren and spiritual children as a legacy. What are these, some of these salvation blessings that we are to include in a legacy? Faith to believe in Christ. I see that in verse 18. Excuse me, verse 1b. Imputed righteousness. I see that in verse 1b. Grace. I see that in the first part of verse 2. Peace. I see that also in the first part of verse 2. Knowledge. I see that in the second part of verse 2 and the second part of verse 3. Calling to salvation, I see that in the second part of verse 3. Now, I'm going to take these one by one in a moment. By listing these particular blessings of salvation, these three verses in 2 Peter 1 are helping us to understand what we should be praying to pass on in legacy and what we should be living out to the best of our abilities to pass on in legacy. Now, please remember that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter 
to write the scripture, which we call 2 Peter, so that Peter and his readership could leave a Christ-honoring legacy in the context of standing up against false teachers. That's the general message of 2 Peter. And so quickly, I want to circle back to these blessings that we are to work and to pray to pass on in legacy to help us understand what we're shooting for here. And the first is faith to believe in Christ. I see it there in the second part of verse 1, but I'll read all of verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Of course, ultimately, in each case, faith comes from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The whole package of salvation is the gift of God, including the faith we need to have in Christ to receive the gift of God. Not of works, so that no one will boast. That's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. So ultimately, uh, faith comes from God, but we can talk about such a like and precious faith in Jesus, and we should. And we can pray about such a like and precious faith in Christ, and we should. And we can invite others to have a like and precious faith in Jesus, and we should. Beth has mentioned a couple of times in our years here with Calvary Bible Church, she was saved as a young girl as her family was reading through a children's devotional book at dinners, dinner times, Pete and Penny. And the, the illustration or the picture will be up there for you to see the cover of one of those books. And in that particular book, there was a little lesson or a devotional on Pete and Penny going to the seashore and coming to hear the gospel through their uh, grandfather. And Beth asked about the gospel with her mommy after the rest of the family uh, went on to do different things that particular evening after dinner, and she trusted Jesus to be her Savior. And the point is that the like and precious faith that Beth's daddy and mommy possessed, they read about it that night with all the children, and the Holy Spirit brought understanding to Beth and gave her faith to trust Jesus to be her Savior that night as a very young girl, and the rest, as they say, is the rest of the story, how God has used Beth um, over many years for his praise and purposes. And so um, the first thing we are to seek to pass on to those that we leave legacy to is a faith to believe in Jesus Christ that comes from God. Secondly, we are to pass on to them an understanding of imputed righteousness. Still in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, watch now, by the righteousness of our God. The righteousness of our God is the issue, not the righteousness of us. None of us are righteous by our own efforts or attempts to keep the law of God because none of us can keep the law of God 100%, 100% of the time. So none of us are righteous until God imputes his son's righteousness to all of us. And we know of that in um, Romans 3, 21 to 26, which read, but now, apart from the law, 
The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what we are seeking to pass on in legacy to others is to understand that they won't be righteous enough no matter what they do, but they can be righteous enough when Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed to their accounts. 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about this imputation. He, the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, watch now, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, not in ourselves, in him. And so if you're going to pass along a biblical legacy, you're going to need to help people in your influence, your sphere of influence, to know the only righteousness that works and counts is Christ's righteousness, and it needs to be imputed to you by you putting your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that kind of an outlook on righteousness, I'll tell you what it does. It kills our pride. It kills our hypocrisy. It ought to set aside all attitudes of Phariseeism and legalism and it puts out to the curb, me can do Christianity. So what else are we to work to pass on by way of legacy? Well, according to verse 2a, grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, verse 2, grace be multiplied to you. Grace, of course, is unmerited favor, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. When I am asked, sometimes when I'm asked, how are you? Sometimes I smile and say, better than I deserve, because I understand I'm under God's grace. And so may I say this in terms of passing on legacy of grace, that vertically received grace should lead to horizontally passed on grace. We who know the grace of God in Christ should distribute the grace of God to others who bother us, disappoint us, backstab us. Grace that is vertically received is to be grace that is horizontally distributed. I think of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8a. Often we hear these beautiful verses on agape love in marriage ceremonies. Um, I'm just going to go through the phrases of those verses and show you how they link up with grace. Love is patient. Those of us who are married... Sometimes our wives take a little longer to get ready to go out the door. Maybe they're doing makeup or hair or getting the kids ready. When we are patient and not uh, critical, that's grace. Or 
Love is kind. You know, sometimes when a child uh, out of the blue unexpectedly writes a little note to their mom to say, thank you for doing our laundry each week, or thank you for planning our meals and cooking our meals, or thank you for tucking me in when I go to sleep, or thank you for putting your arm around me when I'm upset and fearful and praying with me. Sometimes those notes of appreciation, those gestures of grace that are not expected uh, are very potent. Love is not jealous. In our home, uh, Beth and I, and during the time of COVID especially, have a lot of ministry on the phone. Uh, Many hours are spent in a week on the phone, and we're, we're glad to do it. But part of what grace is in our home is that we understand that I understand that when Beth's involved in phone ministry and prayer with people, that she can't be you know, talking with me, and I don't get jealous, and, and vice versa, that we have a, a grace toward each other that is not a jealous grace for time or conversation, but we understand ministry and the, the, the privilege of ministry. Love does not brag. Sometimes we find well-meaning people who flatter our children, and it moves from being... Uh, genuine compliment to being flattery, we would do well uh, to help our child know that you know, they are what they are by the grace of God. And um, there's no place for bragging as a child, and there's no place for bragging as an adult. Love does not brag. That's grace. We help our kids see that. Love is not arrogant. When your wife or your husband is wrong and you are right, Grace is not to uh, pile on in a football term, to uh, jump on the pile of tacklers that are already tackling the person, but to understand that um, you are right with grace and not with uh, anything else. Love does not act unbecomingly. Um, Married people, there's something very unbecoming and ungracious about correcting your spouse in what they say or... or, um, in other ways, in front of other people. The gracious thing to do is not to act unbecomingly. And so if you need to say something by way of correction on a date or where you were when something happened or uh, whatever, you do that correcting gently and in private. Love does not act unbecomingly. Grace does that private interaction. Love does not seek its own um, so in our, in our home, there's certain chores we do, and, and uh, washing and drying the dishes is among those chores, and we have a little bit of a rotation, so we all um, get involved. And so when it says that love does not seek its own, that's when I say to Beth, um, I'm going to take your turn to wash dishes tonight. I, I, I know it's not my turn to do that, but I'm glad to do that. Uh, you just relax. Uh, grace. Love is not provoked. Um, you have younger children in the home. Um, when your child needs a spanking, and I believe the scriptures teach that there should be spankings that bring correction, not in anger. That's my point. When a ch- your child needs a spanking, then you be sure you cool off enough that you don't do that spanking in anger, and you explain to the child what's happening and why. 
And what, were the princi- what was the principle that was violated? What was the character quality of God that was gone against, that, that uh, requires a spanking? And then after that spanking done in love and control, hugging that child and crying with that child who's crying and expressing your love for that child and your hope for that child to do better on that matter in the future. That's grace when love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Um, Husbands and wives can be good at something that's not good to be good at, and that's emotional archaeology. (laughs) When you have all these feelings from the past that you just drag up into the present for an argument's sake, emotional archaeology, that isn't what we want to have in our families and our marriages. No emotional archaeology, because emotional archaeology reveals an unforgiving spirit, a grudge, a holding it against the other person. And how can we hold anything against anyone else when God chooses not to hold against us what we have done to offend him? The graciousness of not taking into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. We should never be secretly, silently cheering for bad things to happen to our husband or our wife or our child when they made a poor decision. No, that's not grace. Love rejoices with the truth. Um, when, When you are corrected in private by your spouse, and you see that what you were thinking or what you were saying wasn't actually truth. It was inaccurate. It was error. When you have grace, you rejoice with knowing the truth. And so you thank the wife or husband you have or your friend or whoever it is when they correct you, and now you have the truth where you didn't have the truth before. That's grace in a marriage, and that's grace in a family. Going on, love bears all things. That's the grace of never having the thought or posture in your marriage. Strike three, you're out. (laughs) You've done that one time too many. No, 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 no. 70 times seven. No strike three mentality and no strike three uh, words to our husband or to our wife or to our kids. Love bears all things. That's the grace of God. The grace of God also expressed in love believes all things. We expect our children, grown children, to be honest. We expected them to be honest from the beginning of what they knew honesty meant. And we still believe and expect them to be honest. That's grace. Grace hopes all things. That is, encourages husbands that there's hope for him to do or to know or to long to be what he ought to be. (laughs) I joke that uh, I'm sometimes like a lot of men are, that I only look and see what's right in front of me. So Beth might say, you know, get such and such out of the fridge. And I'll tell you what, I'm not proud of this, but I'll tell you what, if that item isn't right in front of me on the shelf that's at eye level, I don't know where it is. And I'll say, "I I can't see it. She just she shakes her head. She goes, Rob, if you just pulled this back, there it is. But she does that in love. And she does that in the hope and expectation that next time I'll know where the mayonnaise is kept in the refrigerator. All right, so 
We're talking about how to pass on a legacy and what particularly, what salvation blessings particularly to pass along. Now we go down to the next one is peace. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, peace is not the absence of problems. In this world, we will have problems. But be of good cheer, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So peace is not the absence of problems, but rather it's the focus on the problem solver in the midst of our problems. That's a great legacy to pass along. And then there's knowledge, the latter part of verse 2, but I'll read the whole verse. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Knowledge is a major theme in this second uh, writing of Peter in the New Testament, Second Peter. Knowledge is a major theme, and there are two types of knowledge that appear in uh, Second Peter that you need to differentiate between. Here in verse 2, we have the kind of knowledge that I will say is, is full discernment by connecting the dots. Full discernment by correcting or connecting, pardon me, the dots. That was what I was trying to do with you as I went through uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage. And I was trying to connect the dots with you in real life to how love translates into grace in a marriage and in a home. And so the first kind of knowledge we run into here in verse 2 of our passage is a full discernment knowledge that properly connects the dots of God's will, purpose, word, and our lives. Connects the dots. Full discernment. Another example, a different example of knowledge, would be the comprehension via experience knowledge. The comprehension via experience knowledge. That's also a type of knowledge that shows up in 2 Peter. When I think of learning by doing, learning by experiencing knowledge, I think of the things that you just can't learn properly until you experience it, like finding out how hard it is to learn to drive in Nassau or learning how to make Christmas fruitcake by trial and error or figuring out that money doesn't grow on trees by trying to save it and by trying to use a budget. These are all things that are comprehended only by trying, only by experience. Or understanding what it means to lose your job isn't properly com comprehended until you unfortunately have lost your job. Or having your eyes opened about the need of forgiveness in your home. I had no idea how often forgiveness would be a theme of my marriage the day I got married. But as I've experienced wonderful marriage for 37 years, I understand that marriage is a huge theme in any marriage in, in every home. Or we could go on and on. There are many things that we don't really comprehend until we experience what's involved with them. And so um, we need to understand that uh, the scriptures need to be connected with the will and plan of God as revealed in the scriptures, which needs to be connected with how we live as a husband or as a wife or as a father or as a wife or as a mother, excuse me, and then as a spiritual mentor as well. And so which kind of knowledge is most important? Here in verse 2, we've got the kind of knowledge that um, comes from a discernment by connecting the dots. 
And later in verse 5, next week, we'll see the kind of knowledge that comes from um, understanding that we can't fully comprehend something until we have lived it, till we have experienced it. So you ask, which kind of knowledge is more important? I would ask you this. When you got on an airplane, which wing is more important, the left wing or the right wing? Well, I like both wings. <laughs> I need both wings. And we need both kinds of knowledge. And so the last thing that we see in our verses today that we ought to be working to pass along as a legacy is a calling to salvation. Verse 3, the last part of the verse. I'll read all the verse. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness to true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. A spiritual legacy is best passed on by one who has him or herself been called to salvation, a parent or a grandparent or a spiritual parent, pointing out to the one that the legacy is to be left with that that person that's being passed on to has also been called of God to that salvation. It wasn't that my dad called me to salvation in Christ, only he invited me to trust Christ. It was God who did. That's really what makes a legacy stick, seeing God's glory and seeing God's excellence in calling a person to salvation is really what makes a Christian legacy last. The understanding that it's my salvation, it's not just my mommy's salvation or my daddy's salvation or my papa's salvation or my Grammy's salvation. It's my salvation. I've been called of God to this salvation by belief in Jesus Christ. So let's take a little breath. Let's see what we've seen about legacy so far. We've seen the who, that's bond servants, are the ones that best pass along legacy. We've seen the what, the what as some of the wonderful blessings of salvation, faith to believe in Christ, imputed righteousness, grace, peace, knowledge of two kinds, full discernment, connecting the dot knowledge and comprehension through experience knowledge, and a calling to salvation. So let's go on to our third and final point today. It's a how question. How is legacy passed along? And I have three answers to that. The how of legacy is Holy Spirit and Scripture and Christ. And so let's take these three hows individually, beginning the first part of verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life. Of course, divine Power and the Holy Spirit are synonymous terms. Divine power is the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is divine power. And there is no legacy that honors Jesus Christ without divine power, without the Holy Spirit being active and ministering. Divine power is the power which causes a proper legacy to first be lived and then to be taught, and then to be modeled, and then to be received, and then to be embraced, and then to be lived out and to cause this wonderful cycle, perpetual cycle of passing on a good legacy to go on. So divine power, also known as the Holy Spirit, is one of the hows of passing on legacy. The second how is the Bible. I see that in the latter part of verse 3, but again, I'll read all of verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
The Bible is not explicitly mentioned in the verse that I have just read, but clearly the Bible is a big part of what it means in the phrase, everything pertaining to life and godliness. When you have that catch-all umbrella title, everything that pertains to life and godliness, surely, certainly, unquestionably, the Bible, the word of God, is included in everything that pertains to life and to godliness. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, the following, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let me try to make that a little more visual for you. The scriptures, according to these two verses, say, here's the right way. That's teaching. And the scriptures where necessary say, hey, You went off of the right way. That's reproof. And then the scriptures also say, here's how you can get back onto the right way. That's correction. And the scriptures say, this is how to stay on the right way. That's training. And the scriptures say, staying on the right way readies you to be useful to God That's what's referred to by adequacy and being equipped. So everything pertaining to God, everything pertaining to life and godliness, rather, includes the Holy Spirit and the Holy Bible. But there's a third wonderful contributor to this, and that is Jesus Christ himself. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 21, It says, for as as many as may be the promises of God in him, Christ, they are yes. Wherefore also by him, Christ, is our amen to the glory of God through us. You're going to pass along a legacy, the proper legacy. You're going to need the Holy Spirit's power. You're going to need the scriptures, the Bible, and you're going to need a focus on Jesus Christ because all of the promises that are made to the believer are yes in Christ. And we know that after resurrection and after ascension and after the tribulation and after the millennium, that in the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, that Jesus Christ is recorded to say in Revelation 1.8 of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So Jesus Christ is the beginning, Alpha. He's the end, Omega, and he's everything in between. Jesus Christ is everything. So if you're going to pass along the proper legacy, then you're going to need to have the Holy Spirit's power going for you. You're going to need to be in accord and alignment with the scriptures, and you're going to need to focus on Christ. You can't overemphasize Jesus Christ when you seek to pass along the right legacy. And so, 2 Peter 1, 1 to 3, helps us to get information about this theme that we're covering of passing on a legacy. Who? The bondservants of Christ. What? Faith to believe, imputed righteousness, grace, peace, two kinds of knowledge, full discernment, connecting the dots, and comprehension via experience, and calling to salvation. And how? 
divine Holy Spirit power, the Bible, and Christ. In closing, God gave Billy and Ruth Graham, both in heaven now, five children, Gigi, Anne, Franklin, Ruth, and Ned. It took quite a bit of time, but now all five of the Graham grown children serve the Lord Jesus in some kind of a way. These five grown Graham daughters and sons would be the first to tell you that they have fallen short of God and the lessons that their daddy and their mommy taught them. They would be the first to tell you that there have been divorces and there has been drug abuse and there has been a runaway grandchild. They'd be the first to tell you that they are certainly not perfect. But by God's grace and with God's forgiveness and with the prayers of their parents while they were still alive, that each of them are now holding on to the legacy which their daddy and their mommy passed on to them. And as I said, all five Graham-grown children are in some form of Christian ministry And that is said to the glory of God. I want to close with a couple of quotes, one from Ruth Graham and the other from Billy Graham. Ruth said, If I cannot give my children a perfect mother, I can at least give them more of the one they've got and make that one more loving. I will be available. I will take time to listen, time to play, Time to be home when they arrive from school. Time to counsel and encourage. End of quote. And then Billy Graham said, The greatest legacy one can pass on to one's children and grandchildren is not money or other material things accumulated in one's life, but rather a legacy of character and faith. And so 2 Peter one, one to three have been our verses today. Bond servant, certain blessings that can, are contained in salvation, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and Christ. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Our next sermon in the will of the Lord, God's sparing life, will be next Lord's Day, and we'll be looking at 2 Peter 1 verses 4 through 8. So I would encourage you this week to read off in 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 8 to be ready to receive the word of God next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the possibility of passing along a God-honoring legacy. I thank you, Lord, that you have spelled out in your word for us who should do that and how they should do that and what should be included in what is passed along. Help us, Lord, not to grow weary in well-doing. Help us to repent, to do the right thing where we may not have been. Help us, Lord, to see 
signs of encouragement that the legacy is being received by our young ones and our not-so-young ones. And uh, keep us prayerful for our marriages and our families. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.